Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we have a brand new episode where we're gonna talk about one of your favorite things ever, batteries. I know, it's super great. Seriously, we're gonna get into the nitty and the gritty of these little electrical cells. We're gonna talk about some of the best batteries in the world, some of the oldest batteries ever found, what batteries actually are, because they're not exactly what you probably think they are. We're even gonna have a special guest to talk about atomic movement within batteries. Over the next 45 minutes, we are gonna dig deep into the physics and chemistry, design, and possible future of these ubiquitous pieces of modern technology. It's gonna be shocking. Get it? It's a battery joke. I'm positive. Anyway, let's kick into it. To start with, batteries suck. They're terrible. There are scandals left and right when it comes to batteries. Apple is making your phone slower, for example. They're not doing this because they want you to buy a new phone, by the way. Or at least that's not the only reason they're doing it. We have to do it because of the batteries, because batteries suck. Some batteries cause phones like Samsung's to explode. My parents have an electric car. They live in Michigan, and the batteries, they perform worse in the winter because they don't perform well when it's cold. Batteries suck. I love going to the beach and putting on a podcast or music, but if it gets hot, my phone turns off because batteries suck. They've been a long time coming though. To explain, you have to understand what a battery is. And it's etymology time, baby. The word battery is pretty old, but it traditionally means, you know, beating up someone. <laughs> Bombardment, punching, and artillery, all are connected to the word battery. It comes from Middle French and English. But in 1748, this duder Ben Franklin, my childhood hero actually, was the first to use battery as the way we think of it today. In Middle English, battery, B-A-T-E-R-I, means forged metal wire. But now, thanks to Ben Franklin, it meant an electrical cell. And this was before the battery as we know it was even invented, by the by. Alessandro Volta did that in 1800, and Ben Franklin was using this word as early as the 1740s. When Volta invented the voltaic cell, basically all batteries that you think of today have descended from that. It has a few different basic parts, an anode, which is negative, a cathode, which is positive, and the electrolyte, or something connecting the anode and the cathode, usually a liquid or something else. That allows the electrons or ions to move through the battery. The anode is, again, the negative end. It spits out electrons into the electrolyte. The cathode sucks up the electrons from the electrolyte, and it moves electricity through the circuit. This is the opposite, by the way, of what I expected when I was looking at a battery. If you ever looked at a battery, I always thought the positive end, you know, stuff came out there and went into the negative end. But it's actually kind of moving the other way. And again, this is batteries as we know them. There were batteries prior to Alessandro Volta's invention. In 1936, some clay jars were found in what is today Iraq, and they're from the Parthian era or the Sassanid era, uh, about essentially 250 BCE to 250 CE. Uh, there's a range there because we don't know exactly when they're from. But inside of these clay jars was a copper sheet rolled around an oxidized iron rod, which alone don't really do anything. But if you filled the jar with lemon juice, for example, you'd have a tiny galvanic cell. Scientists think that it could make 0.8 to 2 volts of electricity. They don't think that they use this to power anything or anything like that. They think they likely used it for healing ceremonies. But it shows that humans understood that chemistry could produce this electricity way before we thought that we could do this. 
The word battery wasn't even invented yet. That wasn't used until Ben Franklin in the 1740s, like I mentioned earlier. But the reason he did it was also because of a weird battery-like device called a Leyden jar. It's a glass bottle that you would fill partway with water. You put a copper wire inside the water through like a cork, and then you would create static electricity with a cloth or a crank on the wire, and the Leyden jars would hold the electrons. I mean, they didn't know they were electrons at the time, but they knew that it was holding something that when you touched it would deliver a charge, like a little punch. Ben Franklin experimented with these Leyden jars, and as he did so, came up with the word battery. I always wondered if maybe he did that because a shock does kind of feel like a punch. And in fact, the Science History Institute wrote that scientists experimenting with this new technology kept shocking themselves so much that they were getting nosebleeds and having dizzy spells. Uh, one reported feeling like they were having a minor heart attack during their investigations. Maybe stop shocking yourself, scientists, you know? Technically, Leyden jars aren't batteries, but they're actually condensers or capacitors because they just store the electricity. Batteries, however, they don't do that. They are not storing electricity. They're using chemistry to produce electrons and make work, essentially. Capacitors and condensers store electricity. And it may be a surprise to you, but batteries, they don't store electricity. They instead produce electrons through a chemical process. Chemical reactions move ions around and thus move electrons through a circuit. Think of all the wires in, say, a flashlight as like the haunted mansion at a theme park. Each of the carts on the track is an electron, and they all can move. But there's always one that replaces it. It's right behind the first one, right? Eventually, the first car is going to come back. A battery in a flashlight doesn't create electrons, but what it does is force electrons into the circuit. It forces one electron at a time from the negative anode into the wires. The ones in the wires then move into the bulb, the ones in the bulb move into the return wires, and then into the cathode. It all makes sense as a conveyor belt. The thing that drives them, the thing that moves this conveyor belt, is a chemical reaction between the cathode, electrolyte, and anode. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. But this is why all batteries can't last forever. Alkaline batteries have an alkaline solution. And you would think of them as the batteries that you put in your home devices. AA, AAA, C batteries, D batteries. The negative cathode is made of manganese dioxide, and the positive anode is usually made of zinc powder. The electrolyte is a potassium hydroxide. That's the alkali part. Alkali means basic. Battery acids have high pH, which makes them alkali. Eventually, the anode will get corroded, and over time, the battery won't work anymore. Because again, you're making a chemical reaction to push these electrons around the circuit and keep the theme park running. Once the chemical reaction is spent, once the reaction is over, the reactant, it's expired, the battery's dead. Rechargeable batteries, though, are made of different materials, but that chemical reaction can be reversed. We use power from the power plant, plug it into the wall, and we push the electrons the opposite way on the track, like rewinding it. Think of that flashlight example. The theme park ride is in the power lines, and the electrons are pushing through the wires into your house through the rechargeable battery and into the ground. The electrons push the ions in reverse, forcing them back into the electrolyte, then back into the positive anode. Think of lithium ion batteries. Lithium cobalt oxide is the negative cathode. Carbon is the positive anode. And this reaction has to be able to go forward and in reverse. This reminds me, just a second ago, I mentioned AA batteries, AAA, C and D. 
Let's say you bought a flashlight and the battery died, right? We have all of these letters so that you know which battery to put into the flashlight, right? But this wasn't always the case. There was a time where if you bought a flashlight that was, say, a Trace branded flashlight, you might need to go to the Trace store to buy a Trace 01 type battery. And it's the only one that would work in that flashlight. That would be horrible, right? But if it's generic, then great, we can put any battery that's AA sized into there. But AA doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't stand for anything. It's not an acronym. It just has to do with the letter designation it was given by the American Standard Specification for Dry Cells and Batteries by the American National Standards Institute, or ANSI. They met in 1924 with representatives from all of the different major electronics manufacturers and the U.S. government to solve the problem of all of these different types of batteries. We don't want a new battery for every single new device that's ever invented, even though that's good for businesses because they have this revenue stream. It's bad for consumers. The Commerce and Labor Appropriations Bill of 1924, quote, included enormous savings to both the government and public at large if we can come up with a standard. So they came up with A to J. There's the A battery, the B battery, the C battery, the D battery, and they have double A and triple A as well. There are B batteries, we just don't use them anymore. So the AA, A, C, and D are just the size of the battery. AA specifically is 50.5 to 49.2 millimeters tall, and it specifies the contact points on the battery. The little nub is called a cap. It's about 5.5 millimeters across. The wide flat base is seven millimeters across and so on. And that way all AA's could be the same, both for use purposes, but also disposal purposes, because there are acids in these batteries, which is why you should recycle them and not throw them away. There were also specifications for how much the battery should produce. A AA should produce 1.5 volts, but that doesn't cover the chemistry inside the battery. That's a different letter designation altogether because there are different chemicals that you could put in the battery to produce different things in different ways. The thing is, even though we've just focused a little bit on size, size doesn't actually really matter when it comes to batteries. What matters is the chemical reaction inside of the battery. So think of the battery in, say, your phone or tablet device, right? The chemical reaction inside the battery is what's driving the electrons through the wires and what's keeping the device running. However, that chemical reaction can change. The strength of the reactive material is what matters here. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2013 created a lithium-ion battery that was 2,000 times more powerful than comparable batteries of the same size. So even though I thought like, oh, car battery, it's really big, it's super powerful, watch battery, really small, not super powerful, it kinda doesn't matter. There are some things that go into this, but it kinda doesn't matter. A lithium ion battery with the same size could produce, with this chemistry, more power. Again, saying that size isn't that important overall, just the chemistry is important. Essentially, the electrons are being pushed through the wires, and this is why batteries can expire. The chemicals inside, they're not just sitting around. A battery is a dynamic place. Things are reacting and moving. They're corroding. The metals inside can actually break down over time because of the chemical reaction that makes the battery work. A good rechargeable battery doesn't just reverse the chemical reaction and pull electrons in and out, right? It also has to reverse the corrosion of internal materials so it lasts for a long time. 
And to learn more about that, in 2010, Ohio State dissected lithium-ion batteries, and they looked at them with infrared microscopes because they wanted to see what was happening on the microscopic level to the cathode and the anode and the electrolyte so they could make better batteries. And it turns out the lithium was lost as it was transferring the charge around the battery. It just got so tired, it couldn't shuttle electrons around anymore. It just couldn't do it. <laughs> Lithium-ion batteries are currently the best things that we have for moving electrons through our devices. Batteries today can do so much more than the shocks delivered to scientists in the mid-1700s, and way, way more than the Baghdad battery that they found in 1930s. But they're still crappy. Batteries are literally in everything. If you're watching this on a TV or a desktop computer, there's a battery in there to keep the internal clock running even when it's unplugged. Obviously, laptops and phones and tablets and all of those things have batteries too, but so do old video game cartridges because that's how they keep their save games. And of course, pacemakers, if you have one of those, there's a battery inside of your body. And currently, again, lithium ion is the battery that changed everything, but it's not the only battery. Next, we've got a special guest that can actually talk about how batteries actually work at the atomic level and if we're ever going to get a perfect battery. So batteries. We've already established they kind of suck. So let's talk about how we can make them a lot better. So we brought in Dr. Alex Urban. He's a scientist at UC Berkeley, and he is a battery expert. Is that correct? Well, I, I hope that's correct, and I'm so happy to he be here, Trace, and um, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to make it across. Actually, he was at Berkeley, now he lives in Scotland, so it was quite the trip. I think it's the furthest we've ever had a guest come from. <laughs> well, my pleasure to be here, so. <laughs> Great, well, let's talk about lithium-ion batteries specifically. Those are the batteries that we see most often, I think, or interact with the most often. They're right. in all of our devices, in all of our phones and computers, and right, even right. in cars and things. So briefly, can you kind of explain how a lithium-ion battery works? Sure, absolutely. So, and, and let me emphasize that the technological revolution of the last decade would not have been possible without lithium-ion batteries. So, as you already said, our smartphones, our tablets, our variable electronics, everything is driven by lithium-ion batteries. And um, on the smallest scale, basically, a battery is an electrochemical cell consisting of two electrodes, a cathode and an anode, submerged in a liquid electrolyte. And the cathode material in lithium-ion batteries contains lithium ions, so that lithium is a metal, and uh, these are positively charged metal atoms. And when the battery is charged, these lithium ions are pulled out of the cathode and uh, enter the electrolyte. And this process is then reversed when the battery is used. So when you discharge the battery, when you use your smartphone, the lithium ions go back into the cathode. So that's why the cathode material is really one of the most crucial parts of the lithium-ion battery. Mm. Okay, and so then once that happens, it, puts, it pushes the electrons through the device and keeps everything running. Right, simultaneously, exactly. When the lithium ions are pulled into the electrolyte, electrons are pulled out to the external circuit, and then when the battery is discharged, this process reverses, and the electrons are what really is then doing the work and driving the devices. It sounds like what you're saying is that the lithium ions don't just sit there. It, I think of the battery as just a solid thing. It's, a, you know, that solid black thing with writing yeah, on it, but right? But it's not. Yeah. The, the, the lithium ions are physically moving around inside of that battery? Absolutely, absolutely. Batteries are very dynamic. And lithium is 
is going from the cathode side to the anode side. So that's how you have to think about it. Lithium is really shuttling between the two electrodes, between the cathode and the anode, and that's what is charging and discharging. And that's also what's wearing down the batteries. That's why they don't live forever, mm. because this process, of course, changes the structure of, the, of both electrodes and uh, over longer periods of time, they start to degrade and the structure becomes unstable. So yes, the batteries are actually dynamic things. They are not static. That is so cool. It makes me yeah. think of like a well-used road, you know? <laughs> At first, the road is new. Right, it's right. like, all oh, the paint is nice. It's like right, the, right, right. the right color. And then over time, you start to get the grooves where the tires drive and the lines right. start to degrade and you just need a new road, you know? Because people are driving back and forth on it all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's super neat. And so it's not only the capacity that counts, but also the rate with which lithium can diffuse through the, through the entire system. That gives us the time that it takes to charge or discharge the battery. So the faster lithium can diffuse, the faster you can charge your smartphone or your, your electric vehicle. So that's also an important factor. Hmm. Yeah. Super cool. But I would like to get back to the cathode material that, sure. I, that I mentioned before. So what is really important for the energy storage capacity of the battery is the material that the cathode is made of. And here we are really stuck because the material that was first proposed for lithium-ion batteries, lithium cobalt oxide, so that's, that's containing lithium but also the transition metal cobalt, was proposed in 1980 and is still being used today. So that's still the material that's used in iPhones, for example, huh. and other smartphones. And, uh, and it's just working so well and it's really hard to improve um, over it. Oh, okay. Is there any other kind of metal that people think we could use other than cobalt? So other, other commercialized batteries contain cobalt in mixtures with other transition metals. So for example, nickel and manganese, also aluminum. But there's always cobalt and all these materials have the same crystal structure. And that's the key point here. So all these cathodes are layered materials. So that's, those are oxides. But then in between of the oxygen atoms, you have layers of transition metals, so cobalt, for example, and then lithium, and then again transition metal, lithium. So it's a layered structure. Mm. And on one hand, that's good because from such a structure, lithium can be extracted easily because all the lithium is in one layer. But on the other hand, it comes with a limitation. You can never extract all of the lithium because then the layer would collapse. So mm. if you remove all of the lithium from the lithium layer, the material would become unstable. And then the battery just wouldn't work and the, anymore. And then you cannot you cannot discharge the battery anymore. It's just over. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. There's also, um, you know, we, in the research for this episode, we also talked about disordered cathodes. What, what's a right. disorder? Right. That's cathode? where the disorder comes in. Because there we went away from this layered structure and we tried something different. We tried a crystal structure where lithium and transition metal sits everywhere, sits on the same sides. So there are no distinct lithium and transition metal layers anymore. But lithium and transition metal atoms share the same, the same sides in the structure. Okay. And that only works for compositions that contain more lithium than transition metal. Okay. But once that is given, that's no problem. We don't need the layering. And so this was a big step to discover because that allows us to extract substantially more lithium from the structure because the transition metal sits everywhere and stabilizes the structure so you don't have collapsing layers anymore. And um, so the disordering really gives us much greater capacities. We can double the capacity that lithium cobalt oxide has. And that's just by going from a very organized structure to a disorganized exactly, structure. Exactly, exactly. Uh -huh. And is that because yeah. it doesn't 
it, it can maintain its kind of rigidity because exactly. of the disorder? Exactly. Huh. That's, that's precisely the reason. So the transition metal stabilizes the structure and we can pull out more lithium from the crystal structure. So what are the biggest problems with lithium-ion batteries? I mean, we've all seen the, the news media, they explode and all of that. But aside right, from right. that, like what, what are the problems with batteries as we know them today? Like why, why do they have so many problems? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think they have so many problems, oh, okay. but, they, but, but it would just be better to store more energy in them, just yeah. to have batteries that have larger capacities so that we can really have electric vehicles, with, for example, with the same range as, uh, as gas-fueled vehicles. So that would be great. And that's what we have been working on mainly during the last years. Um, but, of course, what you mentioned, also safety issues, are also a big problem. So the liquid electrolytes that I mentioned earlier are inflammable. And so all the battery fires that you have heard about, the Dreamliner fire, for example, or the, the Samsung Galaxy disaster, that was all because the liquid electrolyte started burning, combusted. And so, so people are working on replacing these combustible parts also. Why is it combustible? What is it about it that causes it to catch fire. So it's just a, uh, it's just an organic solvent, if you wish, so just like alcohol, and, and it burns really well. And so if anything goes wrong, if once there's a short circuiting, for example, the electrolyte ignites and the battery blows up. Mm. And so one pathway to avoid that is to replace actually the liquid electrolyte with a solid, a solid ion conductor, and people are working on that. So that's like solid-state batteries that we've actually talked about on Seeker before. It's, right. Okay, really yeah. cool. that, that's an important topic, so we already covered that. Yeah. Well, I mean, tell us a little bit about, like, why is solid-state battery, why, why is it so exciting? Yeah, I mean, the safety issue that I told you about before is, of course, the one big motivator. Another is that um, having a solid would enable us to use lithium as one of the electrodes, so as, the, as the anode material, actually. And lithium metal would make for the ideal battery. Right now, that's not possible because with a liquid electrolyte, little lithium wires, dendrites, would start growing across the electrolyte and would result in a short circuit eventually. And so that can be avoided with a solid electrolyte, possibly. So we are not quite there yet. <laughs> right. Um, so that's the hope. So uh, on the show, we talk a lot about graphene. We love graphene. <laughs> it's great. Um, yeah. And we also, in doing research to talk to you, uh, saw graphene electrode girders. So what are those exactly? And well. is graphene really <laughs> everything that we think it is? <laughs> so let me tell you that the anode material, so I'm so far we talked about the cathode, but now the other electrode, the anode, in most batteries is actually graphite. And mm -hmm. you know graphite is just many layers of graphene. Right. And, and so that's not anything extraordinary. Every commercial battery that you are using, or most of them, is really using graphite. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, some people have explored if going to graphene or multi-layer graphene, which is then already getting closer to graphite, is also a good option. And it might. In my opinion, that's that's just stretching it a little bit. But mm -hmm. uh, well, of course, graphite is cool. Uh, graphene is cool. And so if we can use it for batteries, why not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what about alternatives to lithium ion? You know, we've seen nickel cadmium batteries in some like lighter devices, not so much the heavy use devices we have now. Yeah. Um, but is there like another step if we were to, to leap into the future, I guess, what would be the next kind of battery we might see? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a very hot research topic. So um, for once, lithium is relatively rare. And so it might not be actually sustainable 
to produce enough lithium batteries to transition to only electric vehicles, something like that. And so people are exploring to use sodium ion batteries, for example. You know, sodium is much more abundant. And, uh, and magnesium ion batteries would also have the advantage that magnesium ions carry uh, two positive charges per atom. So mm -hmm. in principle, you can store twice as much energy with magnesium ion batteries as you can with lithium ion batteries. So that's a very active research field right now but it's not working quite well yet. So mm -hmm. that will t still take a little while until we actually will see magnesium ion batteries, but they definitely are very promising. So when you say it's an active research area, are people, is it like trial and error? You take some magnesium <laughs> and you put it yeah. here and then you put electrode on it and you put some electrolyte in the middle and you just kind of see what happens or is it is it more theoretical than that? So to some extent it's trial and error, but I'm very happy that you asked me this question because my background is quite different. I'm actually doing simulations. Oh. So the group that I'm coming from is doing both simulations and experiments. But what my specific expertise is, I actually simulate how atoms move through this battery. So what we just talked about, that's exactly what I'm doing. And that's where we start with alternative battery technologies also. So we really calculate the diffusion barriers for magnesium, for example, through different materials and then determine which materials would be best suited for batteries. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we can do in the computer before we even go to the lab and start making batteries. So that's, Whoa, that's, that's really neat. I find that pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so the physical laws that describe atomic interactions, I mentioned that earlier, are well known. So that's quantum mechanics. And so what I'm doing essentially is I'm solving these very complicated equations in an approximate numerical way. And there are already commercial programs, computer software is already available that can do that. So it's actually pretty simple. I just need the atomic structure, that's the input. And then I uh, use one of these programs and I get out as an output, I get the energy. Mm. And so I can rank different structures by the energy and the lowest energy structure is the most stable one. And that will be the one that we observe in nature. So that's in a nutshell how these kind of simulations work. I also like the fact that you're like, oh, quantum mechanics. Yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of that figured out. It just seems so complicated <laughs> from where I'm sitting. Well, with paper and pencil, it certainly is. But we do already have software that solves all these complicated equations for you. So you don't actually need to think too much about all these complicated yeah. physical Yeah, so it's good to know stuff. it, but it's not necessarily, you don't have to use it every single day in terms of figuring things out. Right. Of course, you should know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but but... It's good to have already software that does the job for you. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, there's a lot behind, a lot of technology behind. So these kind of simulations can be computationally very demanding, especially for real, realistic materials like battery materials that contain defects. And uh, we, we talked about disorder before. And so it's not just one structure. And so for these kind of simulations, we actually need supercomputers. And so here at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, we have one of the uh, fastest supercomputers in the world. And, um, and that's what we are using for this kind of simulation. So it's not on a, on a laptop computer, but it's actually on a, on a real big uh, <laughs> thing with, with, with a lot of power. Yeah, so, that's how, that's yeah. gotta be really exciting, yeah. like as a scientist to be like, I'm gonna use a supercomputer for Yeah, this. it is, it is, it is. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool when you think about that you can use one of the fastest computers in the world for your research. How did you um, uh, get into studying this? You know, what excites you about 
about batteries. You know, yeah, batteries right, are something right. that are so ubiquitous. Right. Most people don't think twice about them, but... Right. So, as I told you, I come from atomistic simulations, and that's kind of a little bit exotic topic. And mm -hmm. so, after I completed my PhD, I, I thought to myself, what can I do with that skill? So, what are the important challenges, important questions in the world, and to which could I contribute to. So atomistic simulations are maybe not well suited to cure cancer or something like that. But as it turned out, for batteries, these kind of simulations are really, really useful because we can look at all these atomistic processes. And as the global energy problem is definitely there and has to be solved, we need a solution for it urgently. Mm -hmm. And so... It was no question for me that this is a direction to go into. That's so neat. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is fascinating to think about how atoms move around. You know, we have a number of, of episodes that we've talked about atoms moving, but even just thinking about them moving on a daily basis, that must be really <laughs> exciting, I feel like. It's also much safer. Nothing can explode. You can't, you can't <laughs> accidentally poison yourself or anything yeah, like you that. You just yeah. don't want to get a computer virus is all. <laughs> exactly. <most> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, don't get me wrong. In the end of the day, we want to have a real battery. And so it's really crucial for me to work together with experimental colleagues to then try out um, the battery materials in the lab or also it goes vice versa they come to me and found something interesting experimentally and then ask me to explain what they are looking at and mm -hmm. so it's really it's really a very close interaction a couple practical questions uh, how often do you charge your phone do you have <laughs> are there tips that we could have on how lithium-ion batteries should be taken care of my right, uh, right. my dad is obsessed yeah. with batteries yeah. uh, we used to have to take the phone off of the hook so that it would die and before we were allowed to put it back onto the hook yeah. he was he was weird like that. Yeah, so for lithium-ion batteries, um, I already mentioned that most of the cathode materials have this layered structure and that it's not good to extract all of the lithium from it. So for lithium-ion batteries, it's actually better not to charge them completely. Mm. So if you charge them to 80% or something like that, and then start recharging when you hit 30%, that will increase the lifetime of the battery significantly. Cool. So that would be one advice. Yeah, so you yeah. kind of like keep it in the middle. Yeah, but of course, in the end, that's maybe not so practical. We all charge our phones overnight, so we just plug it in before we go to sleep, and then it's 100% when we wake up. So that's not good for the battery, but more convenient. So the last question I have uh, on this round is, do you think we're ever going to see the perfect battery? You see this in the media all the time. <laughs> hey, they've created the perfect battery, but what... what do you think we'll get there? So what does that even mean? Can you explain to me what what the perfect battery means? I guess I would say the perfect battery, knowing a little bit about batteries, would probably be a capacitor, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, accept all my electricity, yeah. give it all back to me, please, very efficiently. But yeah. in terms of so, a battery, I guess yeah. one that lasts for a long time, can be recharged mm -hmm. as many times as I need it very quickly. And... Um, I mean, those two things are, are probably the two legs of a perfect battery. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to use capacitors for long-term energy storage. Um, yeah, but, but apart from that, I think what, uh, what we talked about earlier, so increasing the capacity, this is really the main objective now. And, and the, other, the other, and safety, of course, we talked about that. But the other factors, for example, how efficiently energy is stored and um, and uh, extracted from the battery, so how much is actually lost in this process, that would also be maybe a factor for an ideal battery. But it's not in, so important in practice once we transition to renewable energy sources and get electricity basically for free from sunlight and from, from wind. So um, I don't think we will see 
a perfect or ideal battery any soon, but I don't. I also don't think it's needed. Mm, you don't so, think it's needed? Oh, no, I mean that's not that's not really the bottleneck here. So it's it's much more important that we increase the energy density that we can store more energy in the batteries. And but but they don't have to be without loss, in my opinion. Huh. I mean, maybe not everybody is of that but opinion. Still, but yeah. <laughs> that's a cool way to think about it. It's like if yeah. we can create energy in such a way that we don't have to worry about how the energy is created, exactly. then the battery is an intermediary just storing the electricity exactly. until we need it. Exactly. Huh. And if you lose a little bit of energy in the process, it doesn't really matter, yeah. in my opinion. Again. Yeah, so, because yeah. we've collected it from the sun yeah. and it was going to go to waste anyway. Right, right. Wow, what a cool way to think about it. Well, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. This is Thanks awesome. for having me. Okay, so now that we know more about what's actually going on with these little building blocks of the technological age, where are we going to go next? The future of batteries is going to be weird and crazy. Right now, there's the anode, it gives up electrons, the cathode that takes them, and the electrolyte that connects the two together, right? That's often a liquid or a gel. This is every battery. There are also stretchy liquid or gel batteries. Those are things that exist. The thing is, those battery types are all kind of traditional. What about batteries of the future? So think of stretchy batteries or liquid batteries, gel batteries. These are all things that exist. We've talked about them before here on Seeker, and they are still often based on the same kind of structure. Lithium ion batteries are great. The thing is, though, they're inflexible. They can't be bent. They can't be you know, reformed in any way. They're also inflammable, which by the way, means the same thing as flammable. We had a conversation amongst our team about that. Yeah, they mean the same thing. So a team of researchers created a new kind of glue that can bind the battery elements together in a flexible framework using hydrogels. They can take the anode and the cathode and they can put in a springy shape or into a bendable shape to create a battery that's stretchy. But it's still not great because it's still based on lithium ion technology. So it's a solid lithium inside of a stretchy case. The lithium doesn't flex, just the case flexes. So if we want something that's really moldable, we're going to have to go away from that altogether to a whole new kind of chemistry. And that brings in liquid batteries. Using the chemistry of electric eels, some researchers have created a liquid battery. Biomimicry, by the way, is my favorite thing. It's when we copy nature. And it's actually, well, actually, it's my second favorite thing. My first favorite thing is Beyonce mimicry or Bay mimicry. Yeah, it's a thing. Anyway, biomimicry. By alternating patterns of saltwater and freshwater hydrogels, you can create a liquid battery. Because saltwater carries negative charges. It's got ions in it. The negative ions from the saltwater move into the freshwater when they're placed in little packets next to each other. So when they're arranged in a lattice of these little packets, voila, a battery, which is super cool. But it's still not practical yet. Something that might be practical is going the other way. When batteries go hard, we get solid state batteries. In Nature Materials in 2011, there was a solid electrolyte researched, and it can move ions just like a gel can, but it does it without explosions or sensitivity to cold, which a saltwater freshwater battery would have. It also doesn't use gel, which is great because the gel is part of the problem with lithium ion batteries and their explosive capabilities. So what they did is they used a 3D tetrahedral framework of lithium, germanium, phosphorus, and sulfur 
This framework lets the ions move through the lattice, hopping from one molecule to the next. Again, it's not a gel. It's a solid. It's sort of like the atomic version of a jungle gym. The ions are just moving through the lattice, jumping from one molecule to the next. You could actually, according to the researchers, quote, drive a nail through the battery and it wouldn't explode. And plus, it's safe for hundreds of thousands of charge cycles. But we don't actually have it because it was super experimental back in 2011. And even though it's been years and we tend to think of technology as advancing quicker and quicker and quicker, in reality, it takes a long time to come up with these inventions. They didn't plan the next iPhone starting after the previous one was released. They're years ahead of their release schedule. You know, they're planning the iPhone 12 probably now, right? And that's how science works as well. So even though in the intervening years they've come out with super ionic materials, which are crystalline structures that ions can hop through, they haven't actually perfected them into battery technology. And still, most of these electrolytes, maybe you've noticed, are lithium-based, and none are commercially available. As Alex said earlier in the episode, it's a lot of trial and error to figure out what materials and chemistry work the best inside of these very specific conditions. We're trying to make nature do something that on its own it doesn't really seem to do. You don't just you know, plug into a tree and get electricity, right? Nature doesn't naturally want to create this kind of chemistry. It's volatile and it could be damaging. So instead, we have to bend chemistry and bend nature to our will. And that takes some time. And of course, all of these batteries still have that same problem that we've sort of alluded to throughout this whole series, and that is that they'll die, unless you can find a way to make them not die, like with the vanadium redox flow battery. It's a really cool design. It's essentially like the liquid battery in that there are different groups of electrolytes. However, it's completely different. The Atlantic had a write-up on the vanadium redox flow battery, in 2014. It uses a 250 kilowatt battery system inside of a 40 foot container, and it's hooked up to a solar or wind energy project usually. So that way you have this battery that potentially never dies and is recharged by renewable energy. The chemical reactions inside of this battery work like this. There are two electrolyte solutions, the catholite and analyte with vanadium. Vanadium, by the way, in case you aren't familiar with the periodic table, it's number 23. It's a natural transition metal element. The University of New South Wales does a lot of research on these batteries, and how they describe it is this. The catholite and analyte of vanadium flow through electrode chambers with a membrane that separates them. But because that membrane is porous to ions, the ions can hop between the two. The energy then coming into the system would reverse that ion flow. So the catholite and analyte ion flow is creating that electron movement that you need in order to make a circuit, just like we talked about earlier. In doing that, of course, they have to reverse the ion flow, and that's where the solar or wind power comes in. It pushes the ions back through the membrane, back into their original positions. The nice thing about this type of battery is that the solutions themselves have an indefinite shelf life, which means the battery could technically never expire or die. It could be recharged instantly. All you'd have to do is swap out the electrolyte. And vanadium is super cheap. But I don't know if you paid attention to this earlier, but it's a 40-foot long system that produces kilowatts of power. 
It's not great for devices. It's more for homes and neighborhoods, especially in very rural areas. It's very much not great for computers and devices and little things that we're using every day that batteries have heavy impact on. But you know what? As long as we're being crazy, right? If we're gonna go with these things that look like they come out of Die Hard with a Vengeance, but they're batteries, maybe we should just bring capacitors back. Remember capacitors? It's like storing electricity. It's not using chemistry, because who needs chemistry? Just kidding, I really like chemistry. Sorry, Mr. Bright from high school. I definitely really like chemistry. I would never say that, that's just mean. But batteries, they use chemistry to store energy and capacitors, they just store electricity directly. So why do we wanna have batteries at all? Why not capacitors forever? Remember the Leyden jars from Ben Franklin's experiments? Those were capacitors and they were networked together to produce a pretty big jolt. If you've been around our channel, then you know graphene is the best. Just do the graphene dance. I love graphene, I really do, it's really great. Graphene is, if you're not aware, a one atom thick carbon lattice. Ions can move through the lattice very easily and it holds them like an atomic version of the Leyden jar. The lattice can discharge when needed and did I mention that this is also a biodegradable and abundant resource? Seriously, you can actually make graphene out of wood. In 2012, we learned to make graphene with DVD burners. It's called laser-scribed graphene, and it's literally the DVD burner that you'd go to the store and buy. Then you take it, slice it in half, you add an electrolyte, and boom, you've got yourself a graphene supercapacitor. I mean, you have a really, really tiny one. The problem is, even though studies show that it has high power and high energy density, and those studies are still coming out as if we need convincing, they're not actually commercially viable yet. And that's the problem. See, scaling up graphene means that even though we know it's there, we know how great it is, and we know it's the future, we can't make it. At least not at a scale where it matters. Until now, China is investing in this technology. The National University of Singapore created a new way to make graphene. What they do is they create a slurry with a solvent in alkaline conditions. That slurry is then used to directly 3D print conductive graphene aerogels, like a spongy material. It's not actually a gel. They claim that this process is scalable and could create graphene at an industrial level, meaning that we could get graphene supercapacitors out here in the world. And what if we got to a point where battery technology could do this? I mean, that's amazing, but we're not there yet. So instead, we just have to imagine this future where battery technology is so good that we don't have to worry about it anymore. As of now, I think you probably know, based on everything we've been talking about over the last few episodes or 45 minutes, depending on where you're listening to this, batteries are a hodgepodge of all sorts of different technologies and different disciplines working together to try and make the best thing that they can that can push electrons through whatever device you need. But another problem is all of these people are coming at it from different angles and every single device, every single little piece of technology has different requirements. It's really tough. It's a tough field to be in. But imagine this, a capacitor that stores lots of energy for hundreds of thousands of charge cycles, never corrodes, so lasts a long or short amount of time. They never die or expire. We could make them small and powerful. We created all of these technologies individually already. We just have to put them together, right? But there's one more thing that I just wanted to bring into this discussion that we haven't talked about yet, and that is wireless charging. Because if you take batteries and you combine them with good wireless charging, 
then maybe batteries will be good enough that we just don't need to think about them at all anymore. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to store enough energy for now, right? Imagine if everywhere you were, batteries were just charging all the time. Wireless charging could get to a point where we just don't really care about batteries anymore. Then technology could become a kind of magic. Wireless charging uses an electromagnetic flux to push electrons around wires from a distance. It uses the power from our walls, which is an alternating current, and that changes direction 60 times a second, or at about 60 hertz. In a wireless charging situation, it moves at more like five or 10 hertz, but that's enough to charge a battery. So imagine that we could create a space where that happened all the time, whether it was your office building or your home or your car or all three. We would just need the battery to last in between those places. And if you went to another building and there was a standard, your battery would just be charged all the time. Last year, researchers created a room that was entirely filled with these alternating fields, potentially powering everything in the space. It's not ready yet, but imagine, just imagine, everything charged all the time, no matter where you were. In movies, there's alien technologies, right, that stop working when they take it away from the alien ship or planet. It's a nice plot device, but to be honest, it's also a nice idea because maybe the reason the alien technology stops working is because it's not near the wireless charging ports that they had, right? It's a simple concept, and to me, this is really what makes the whole battery discussion worth having. Because if we can make wireless charging work, then the batteries are already good enough. Maybe they don't actually suck. We just don't have to plug them in anymore. In Star Trek, they don't charge their phasers or their pads. Maybe they use wireless technology. I know they don't actually, they use cerium corallide batteries, but that's fine, whatever, I read the books too. Without batteries, what would you have? Just a tiny piece of expensive design with rare metals in it. Do you think the ancient Persians with their Baghdad battery or Ben Franklin with the Leyden jars knew what it is that they had? Nikola Tesla, one of the fathers of our electrical future and internet meme, once said, the spread of civilization may be likened to a fire First, a feeble spark, next, a flickering flame, then a mighty blaze, ever increasing in speed and power. Human activity has become so widespread and intense that years count as centuries of progress. There is no more groping in the dark or accidentally stumbling upon discoveries. Results follow one another like links in a chain. Such is the force of the accumulated knowledge and the insight into natural laws and phenomena that future events are clearly projected before our vision. To foretell what is coming would be no more than to draw logical conclusions were it not for the difficulty in accurately fixing the time of accomplishment. So if we want to predict where the battery will be, we just have to keep on this chain of events. So where do you think it's gonna go? Thank you to everyone who subscribed to the podcast, who's rated us on the various podcast platforms. Those ratings really help a lot, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez. The associate producer was Victoria Barrios. The production assistant was Megan Bates. It was edited by Alex Estevez and recorded by Matt Pignol and Spencer Snyder. Our intern is Debbie Hainem. And a special thanks to Alex Urban for joining us all the way from sunny Scotland. One final special thanks to you for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be re-releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of all of our episodes on this channel. So again... Take a second, follow and subscribe. See you around. Stay tuned for next week.